being still summertime and school starting later, uh, obviously throughout the summer you have lots of folks away on vacation. Excuse me, if you've been away on vacation and you've missed any of the messages from the Reformation series, let me encourage you to go back and listen to them because they do build on each other. And I think just the material, the historic material is so helpful and so insightful to help you understand, help me understand where we are today, why we are where we are today uh, because of what happened in the 1500s. So, you haven't, if you've missed some of the messages, please take time in the coming weeks to, to catch up. <clears throat> John Newton was a historical hero to me, still is. Can't get enough of reading his books. He was, as I read, he was the consummate pastor. He was patient. He was forbearing. He was loving. He was generous. He was kind. He was, he was courageous. But what most impresses me about John Newton are what I've gathered from reading his personal letters. As successful a pastor he was at the church in Olney and then the church in London where he pastored till his death, he never, never forgot the truth of amazing grace. That song was more than a hymn written by John Newton. It was an autobiography of his life. And it's why it stands the test of time. It is why when he died, one of the last things he said on his deathbed was, I don't remember much. His memory was fading. He says, I don't remember much. But what I do remember is this. He said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. I share this as your pastor to sound a, a warning note. It would be foolish for us to drift away from this truth that Newton lived with every day of his life of being a great sinner, that we drift away from the truth that we are as well great sinners. We may not have had the debauchery that Newton had, the immorality that Newton had. But the sins of internal pride and arrogance and anger and impatience and selfishness and self-exaltation, all those things live within us and have lived within us and at times have manifested itself. I share this as your pastor as a warning note because I don't want us to forget what amazing grace means and how God has put on display amazing grace in your life. If you extrapolate your life from the time you were young and maybe not a believer, and if you had not come to faith in Christ, where you would be today? 
most likely it's not a pretty picture. Don't forget where you've come from. If you do, the history of the Reformation and its truths will have little or no impact on you. And you, you will lose sight of what John Newton never lost sight of. I'm a great sinner. But because he saw that, he knew Jesus was a great Savior. And so as we dive into our next Reformation message, let that ring in your ears. Over the past four weeks, we've been studying the Reformation to better understand not just church history, but more importantly, the biblical foundations of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as revealed in Scripture alone. And hence, you would know the five messages that we've been speaking on. and, And as you have understood it, these alone, these solas, sola fide, the the Latin for faith alone, sola gratias for grace alone, sola scriptura for scripture alone, sola Christus for Christ alone, and sola de gloria for God's glory alone. We've been studying this so that we can, again, immerse ourselves into the foundational and biblical truths of why we are here today and what that means for us each and every day going forward. The events of the Reformation recaptured the biblical truths of the gospel. They recaptured them, and that that is what is foundational to our lives and our faith and our church and our future. Last week, Devin spoke on, on grace alone. He helped us to remember what amazing grace is. Only and it's only amazing when we are clear in our understanding and awareness of the problem that we have as an unsolvable human problem before God. We are great sinners who stand under the unrelenting and justifiable wrath of a loving but holy God who is deeply offended by our sin. And it's by God's grace revealed and God's grace demonstrated in Christ that we find hope. So this morning we will be talking about Christ alone. But before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for these inspired words that not only encourage us and speak to us and convict us, But they are words that reveal you to us. Lord, may we see you today as we read your word. May we grow near to you today. That we might glorify your name. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, the foundational truths that emerged from the Reformation, grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, God's glory alone, and Christ alone, each play a crucial role in salvation theology and salvation history. All of the solas, the alones, are interrelated and they're mutually dependent upon one another. 
You can't have one without the others. They, they would fall down. This morning, we're going to look at the one that plays the most distinct role in connecting all the others. Christ alone stands above the others. It is the one truth that the other four are dependent on. It's the hub, and the other four are the spokes on the wheel. Apart from Christ alone, the others have no meaning or purpose. Apart from having Christ, there's no need for faith. With no Christ, there is no grace. With no Christ, there is no truth. With no Christ, there is no glory. These are connected. I, one of the Discovery Channel shows, a couple of them, Gold Rush and Bering Sea Gold. This guy's going after gold. And Bering Sea Gold, which is, first of all, I mean, you go out on the water. You're out in the middle of the ocean getting seasick. And then they put you inside the ocean in the Bering Sea, and you're in this old-fashioned diver suit with an air hose hooked up, and they're down there with a vacuum, trying to vacuum up, trying to find gold. Um, the only thing that, that makes the gold valuable and keeps this all th- whole going is that air, that lifeline. That lifeline. Cut that lifeline off, you've got a dead diver and no gold. It, it's worthless. And it's the same with Christ alone. Take Christ alone out of the equation and nothing else is necessary. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else is relevant. The doctrine of Christ alone is the foundational doctrine. It is the heart of the gospel. It is what we most want to be able to get our arms around and understand. The doctrine of Christ alone, it rests on two biblical truths. The exclusive and unique identity of Jesus, who was both fully God and fully man. He wasn't human at one point and then God at another point. He wasn't part God and part man. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. So the exclusive and unique identity of Jesus, that's the first thing. And secondly, his sufficient sacrifice and substitutionary death on the cross for our salvation. That's what the doctrine of Christ alone rests on, those two truths. His unique and exclusive identity and his sufficient work on the cross. Now, during the Reformation, you'd be surprised, the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church were in agreement that Jesus was the unique Son of God, that he was fully God and fully man. The Catholic Church had no problem with that. The reformers in the church were in agreement. His unique identity was not in question. And both believed that salvation could come from no one else but Christ alone. Where they disagreed was in Christ's all-sufficient work by his death on the cross as the sole event that brings people into saving faith. They, the church did not believe that Christ's death was sufficient. That it was our necessary earning of merits. That we would need to work. That we would need to live a certain way of living, a certain life to be able to be saved. 
And so they disagreed that Christ's all-sufficient work was sufficient. And so they missed, they missed, the, they missed all that is, that is all about salvation. They missed that he was a propitiation for God's wrath. They, they missed that he secures God's forgiveness. They missed that he gives us his righteousness, that he reconciles us to the Father, that he cleanses us from all sin, that he frees us from the slavery of sin, that he declares us children of God and promises us, uh, promises us eternal life in the kingdom of God. The Roman Catholic ch- Church believed that, that Christ's merit was not enough for salvation. And so hence, Christ alone. Sola Christus. That salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. Men and women in the Catholic Church had to earn their way to heaven through indulgences, priestly forgiveness, and good works. Now, that was the assault on the gospel in the 15th 15th century. This Assault on Christ alone shreds the gospel of its power. But it's an assault that's not just limited to the 15th century. 500 years have passed since the Reformation. And our postmodern world has gone much further in rejecting Christ alone. And it's why this message is so important. This truth is so important. Today in our society, our culture, pluralism and self-determination are the gods of our day. And they have captured the hearts of men and women, convincing them that, that Jesus Christ, although a historical figure, is not a savior, but rather a troublesome figure whose followers are responsible for most evil today. In their minds, absolute truth does not exist, making Jesus irrelevant. One commentator, Rod Rosenblatt, said this, New theologians believe the place of Jesus Christ cannot be central, definitive, or normative for all. To be sure, as pious Christians, we may continue to hold on to Christ as our Lord and Savior, but we may not claim as much for others. Jesus Christ may be my personal Lord and Savior, but this does not mean he is the one and only Savior, the one and only Lord for all others. Even more, several pluralistic theologians hold that because of its stress on the necessity of a person coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the orthodox stream of Christianity, that's you, that's you, East and West, is guilty of Christolatry idolizing Christ, in that it places Christ on par with God. Oh, no. From such Christology, such Christofascism, they claim, comes. An arrogant bigotry responsible for such things as sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, imperialism, and other evils. That is the theologians of the day. And don't be shocked to know that some of these theologians are in what they would call the evangelical world. This is why Christ alone is so pertinent 
and so necessary for us to understand because Christ alone, that doctrine, that truth that we will find in a moment and see in the passage, that truth is being assaulted even by the church itself today. Now, the passage that stands out in proclaiming the exclusivity and the sufficiency of Christ alone is our passage this morning. And if you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul writes this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now this is a passage that is And would be offensive to many because it is a passage about the exclusivity of Christ. That only in Christ is salvation received. In today's world, believing in Christ alone for our salvation is the catalyst for all the evils of the world, is what we are being told. Our biggest problem, the culture says, is it's not individual sin. It's not separation from God. It's not moral decay. It's not the seeking of personal pleasure and the exaltation of self above all things. No, the greatest problem in our society today is believing in Christ alone to save us. That is intolerant to believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as our Savior. In the evangelical world, as I said, is not immune to this error. Again, Rod Rosenblatt said this, the Christ preached in many evangelical congregations seems to exist in order to aid the hearer in his or her pursuit of successful living. Financially, relationally, psychiatrically, in Reformation times, this sort of thing was labeled for what it was, eudemonism, the belief that God exists in order to meet our needs. But... The biblical claim is that the central, the eternal second person of the Trinity became flesh and died in order to graciously meet our real need, the forgiveness of sins, and not to simply meet our trivial daily imagined needs. The remedy to this tragic rejection of biblical truth is for God's church to fully believe, to clearly understand and courageously speak of Christ alone as revealed in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It is the lifeline to all other doctrines and truth. Apart from Christ alone, nothing else makes sense. John Calvin jumps in and he says, For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists, with the view of obscuring Christ, because he knows that by this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine, to place Christ before the view such as he is with all his blessings that his excellence may be truly perceived. Oh, may we glorify 
in Christ alone. May we believe in Christ alone. May we rest in Christ alone. May we find our only hope in Christ alone. May, may we live in, in, and bathe in Christ alone so that we can say, yes, I am a great sinner. Oh, but is he not a great Savior? Now, to have this view of the excellency of Jesus Christ, we, we must first have at least a, a, a brief understanding of the, of the big story of the Bible in Genesis. God, God built the earth as his temple. You get that. And in it, he put his image and he put his likeness, us. It's the place where, where God is known and God is present and God was served and worshipped, this place called Eden. The image of God in his temple were real living and breathing and worshipping human beings. This wonderful place that God had created called Eden. But there were enemies in the temple. This creation of God's Satan and his seed who were trying to usurp God. And, and they did for a moment, but only temporarily do it, were they able to defile the temple. Now, everything that God made was good, but his image bearers rebelled against him and they defiled his temple. And in response to the sin of Adam and Eve, God subjected creation to bondage. That's what you feel today, each and every day you wake up. You feel bondage. You feel bondage when you groan as you get out of bed, which I do daily. Actually, I just groan all the time. <laughs> it's, it's your body decaying. You, you feel the bondage when you look at your finances and you wonder where the money's going to come from. You, you experience bondage when you struggle with impatience and anger. You experience bondage when you see rebellion in our society. You experience bondage when you see fellowship broken among people. You, you see the bondage and the curse that mankind was put under as a result of the beginning of this big story that took place in a place called Eden. You, you feel that every day. Everything God made was good, but it was defiled. And so God calls Adam and Eve to account because of their sin. And he and they, and they are cursed. The ground is cursed. The snake is cursed. But behind it all is a loving God. And if you read Genesis, there's also words of hope, prophetic words of future hope. This scenario in the garden has been played out again and again throughout Old Testament history. You see it in the exile from Eden. You see it in the exodus from Egypt. You see it in the exile from the land that God had promised. They all reveal God's judgment as the nations, as the people sinned again and again, revealing their rebellion, revealing that what had happened in the garden was just being perpetrated again and again throughout humanity to this day. But you also see God being faithful to his covenant. You see God rescuing the Israelites out of the Red Sea. You see God rescuing the nations when they go into exile and bringing them back. You see God faithful again and again to fulfill his promised covenant that he would 
have a people that he would call his own. And that there was one day the seed of woman, who's talking about prophetically from Genesis 3, talking about Jesus, would one day crush the head of the serpent. Who is that? It's Christ alone. That is the big story. And all that leads to the New Testament, and it leads to the cross, to the story of the Old Testament, rebellion and judgment. Our rescue finally comes to a conclusion. In the New Testament, again, we have the same story of rebellion. We have the same story of judgment. But this time, the judgment for sin is permanent. Because there's no more need for a sacrificial system of destroying animals to shed their blood for the forgiveness of sins. One has done it for all. Who is that? Christ alone. A once for all sacrifice, the Son of God. God provides the perfect solution to an impossible dilemma. The impossible dilemma was we could never pay the ransom, the debt that we owe to God for our sin. Only God could solve that problem. And he did it by sending his son who was fully God and fully man. My friends, this is just, literally, it's just an overview of this truth that could be, it could be a six-month series of talking about Christ alone. And we would not exhaust even the truths that we could find in six months. So the meaning of Christ alone. Look at 1 Timothy 2. It shows clearly the divine solution to an insolvable human problem. This heart, this is, this passage is the heart of the Reformation, the Father and the Son and the Spirit working distinctively yet inseparably to bring about salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 5, for there is one God. Now you understand when Paul says that, He's writing, and, and, and Jewish audiences are reading this. And if you remember, in, in Deuteronomy 6, I mean, the, the, this is truth. I mean, the Jews understood this. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. And yet we have this doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons, each fully God. Not three gods. One God. Three persons, each fully God. It is this doctrine that Paul is, is falling back to for both the Jew and the Christian. Because the, the Christian is now understanding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of, of the Son of God. And so here he starts in verse 5, for there is one God. It is this one God who rescues humanity from judgment and wrath, but in particular in the person of Jesus Christ. For there is one God and there is one mediator. Who is that mediator? Christ alone. Are there other mediators? No, there are no other mediators. It is Christ alone alone. Here, the Trinity is working together, but central to this work of the Trinity is Christ, Jesus Christ. The, the hub, the center. It, it is the one God, one God, the Trinity, who rescues humanity from judgment and wrath, but in particular, it is the person of Jesus Christ. Stephen Kellum says this, 
He said, Christ alone is the image of God, the last Adam, the beginning and end of humanity. And Christ alone is the hope of humanity. God's eternal purpose and plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Ephesians 1, 9-10. In Christ, God is recreating. And Jesus stands as the most important figure in God's new creation work. A work that restores and even surpasses what was lost in Eden. God brings forth a new and reconciled heaven and earth by and through Christ alone. And so what Kellum is saying there is that what was great in Eden and what was destroyed in Eden will be recreated and better in the new heavens and the new earth, which is what you look forward to because you have Christ alone as your mediator. And in verse 5, he goes on to say, there is one mediator between God and men. Our, our problem with sin, our problem with sin, brothers and sisters, is deeper than we want to imagine or acknowledge. That's why this truth is not a happy thought in our society today. The average person believes that they are basically good. And we are not basically good. There is one mediator between God and man. The, whole, the holy, pure, righteous, perfect, and loving creator that created the world, that created us, that breathed life into us, that set us in a garden, that said you could eat of any tree in the garden, but one, you could live in this bliss of God's presence and God's provision and God's protection. This creation rebels, and the Creator is mocked and ridiculed, and rebelled against, and slandered, and blasphemed, and rejected by immoral, sinful, filthy men and women who exalt themselves as gods. That's who every one of us is and were. The relationship with God was destroyed at the fall, and no amount of human effort can ever change that. Only God could relent and make a change. But if he was to remain pure and holy, if he was to remain God, he could not accept sinners into his presence. So what was going to happen? Well, again from our friend Rod, he says, apart from a God-giving, law-satisfying mediator, every one of us stands before the righteous God as guilty and justly condemned by his just law. Someone is going to have to satisfy divine justice. But we have not done so, nor can we do so. Someone is going to have to pay the penalty for our sin, but we cannot pay it. We are part of the problem, not the solution. What Scripture says I really need is a mediator between my sinful self and the holy God. Now, Romans chapter 3, and I'm, you don't need to turn there, but I will just read it to you really helps expand this, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then these wonderful words, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. He goes on to say, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So the very God who is condemning us, rightly so, ready to judge us, pour his wrath upon us, is is the just God. He's the judge and, and he is justly going to judge us. He is, but yet he is also, it says there in Romans 3, he is the justifier. Where we could not justify ourselves, God does it through Jesus. And then he goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he says this. Not only is there one God, and not only is there one mediator between God and man, but these these are these are the words of Christmas, the man. Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate one. Apart from the incarnation, there is no salvation. Stephen Kellum says, of all the glorious truths of Christian theology, there is none more excellent and central truth than the truth that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. That the second person of the Godhead became a second man, determining human destiny. The second representative of the race, that he took humanity without loss of deity, so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly fully divine as he was human. Why? In the incarnation, Christ identifies with us. The eternal Son becomes like us, yet He does so to act for us. Christ must identify with us in order to die for us as our new covenant representative and substitute. The incarnation took place for our salvation. The eternal plan is the goal of restoring humanity to our image-bearing role, bringing us into a new and better covenant with the Creator Covenant Lord, and to do so by atonement that results in the forgiveness of sin. And who alone could do that? Christ alone. Do you see how important this doctrine was to the Reformation? To understand theologically, biblically, what it means to have God become man? To celebrate what what Christmas is all about? God has become man. Christmas... It's a, great, it's a great holiday. It's a wonderful holiday. But, but behind it all is this truth. The incarnation took place so that you would not live an eternal death tormented by the wrath of God. That's what Christmas is about. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. And in that giving, He became man. The first Adam failed, and he ruined everything. By becoming a man, Jesus, as the last Adam, does not fail. And he undoes the first Adam's failure by being obedient in life and in death. 
Unless Jesus had taken on our humanity, he could have not undone the first Adam's failure. He could have not redeemed us from guilt and corruption and judgment and sin and wrath. But then Paul goes on. He just doesn't stop in verse 5. One God, one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Only Jesus could pay the debt. The insurmountable, the unfathomable debt that we owe to God. The debt that no human by any merit, by any prayer, by any pleading could ever earn the favor and forgiveness of God alone in Christ who was perfect, fully God, fully man, who was able to die on our behalf, gave his life as a ransom. Now, my wife and I, when we lived in, in Charlotte, would often go down to Charleston, South Carolina. Great restaurants, beautiful homes, historic, just, glor- just colorful homes, great shopping, and just great weather, um, great winters. Really a, really a nice place. But central to Charleston, if you've been there, is the marketplace. And you go up the steps of this one building, and at the top of those steps is where slaves from Africa were led And they stood on the top of those steps as they were bound by chains and sold. They were sold. Their lives in bondage to plantation owners. That's us. That's that's what's behind this. That The slave market, that's the ransom. We were the slaves. We were great sinners on the steps of a slave market in bondage, cursed, ultimately to be badly treated and eventually to die. And Christ came. As slaves, we cannot free ourselves. As the offended party, the Lord appropriately demanded satisfaction because of our sin against him. In grace, he chooses to forgive us in Christ, not by overlooking our sin, but by punishing Christ. The son comes into the human race by the incarnation. He's qualified to become the last Adam. He's qualified to be this mediator. And he's qualified to be our savior. Jesus offers to God as a man obedience and sacrificial death. That's the ransom paid. And so you sit here today no longer a slave because Jesus Christ alone has come in the flesh. He has mediated. He has given his life as a ransom. He has died and he has atoned for your sin. When you understand, as you grow in your understanding of the depth of what God has done for you, as you see the work he has accomplished because of his love for you, 
it will change your life. You'll read the Bible differently. You'll pray differently. You'll make decisions in life differently. And you'll realize this life is short. It's, it's temporal. And the eternity that we are having awaiting us with God, this is what this is all about. A new heaven and a new earth that God has recreated through Christ. Now, why did he do all this? Well, I said it a little bit ago. He did this from John 3, 16. For God so loved you. Individually. God so loved that He gave His only Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If you learn just one thing today, may it be that Christ, in Christ alone, that God loves you enough to send sacrifice and punish His own Son that you might be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. 1 Timothy 2 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now how do we practically respond to this wonderful and life-changing truth? What is required of us? What would the reformer say is required of us? Well, I'm going to give you three things. First, clarity. That we grow in our clarity of this truth. The clarity and understanding of this gospel truth. To endeavor to, to grow in our depth and our understanding. May, may God forbid we ever grow familiar with this. Yeah, I, I, was, I was saved 41 years ago. Yeah, God saved me. I was, I was really a, 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 just a wicked guy, you know. You know but but that's, you know, that's in the past. Yes, it is. Yes, it is in the past. But it's not that far past. Newton said, I don't remember much, but I remember this. I'm a great sinner. Not, I was a great sinner. He said, I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. So clarity, just going deeper into understanding the gospel. Secondly, conviction. We must find our identity in Christ alone, not in our culture. Our culture does not find its identity in Christ. It rejects that. It hates that. Our our culture finds its identity in its ethnicity. It finds its identity in its race, in its experience, in its material possessions, in its sexual orientation, or in anything else. We are Christians. That's our identity. And we are in Christ. And we are in Christ alone. I was born and raised in a Jewish home, but I'm not a Jewish Christian. I'm a Christian. Chris went to Maryland. That doesn't make him a Maryland Christian. He's just a Christian. Amen. You're not an African-American Christian or Hispanic Christian or a gay Christian. 
You are either in Christ and Christ alone or you are not. We can't find our identity and we must have the conviction to stand up as the church, as men and women, when people say things that are in opposition to that, to say, yes, no, no, no. This is who I am in Christ. And then finally, going along with conviction, we must have courage. In the face of a hostile and pluralistic culture, we must stand tall and boldly and proclaim that salvation is found in no one else but Christ alone. Not in Muhammad, not in Buddha, not in yoga, not in essential oils, not in anything, in Christ alone. And yes, when somebody accuses you of being exclusive and intolerant, You are exclusive, absolutely. Intolerant, no. Exclusive, yes. The band could come up. Brothers and sisters, our lives have been dramatically changed. Our lives have been changed not just dramatically, they have been changed eternally. And because of that, we are here today. So let us, let us end with this song just praising God for all that He has done through Christ in our lives.